Morning, everyone. My name is Chris. I'm one of the leaders here at St. Peter's. Um, it's a pleasure, as always, to be able to speak to you this morning. Um, and every time I get on this stage, I am always reminded, reminded about how far God has brought me in such a short space of time. Because believe it or not, I used to have a debilitating fear of public speaking. Um, I know what you're thinking, I'm really good at it, so how can that possibly be the case? Just a few years ago, if you'd have asked um, me to do anything in front of people, uh, to say anything in front of a group, then my throat would have gone tight. I would have felt physically stressed and the room would have felt like it was going to swallow me up. Um, and I just want to die. Does anyone else get that feeling? Not right now, obviously. Um, it was irrational and it felt like my brain was working differently to what everybody else was able to do. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been in a group and some clown has gone, why don't we all go around and say our name and where we're from? And I'd be like, why? Why do I need to do that? If I want someone's name, I'll just ask them for their name. Why do I have to do this publicly? Um, in my petrified head, it would just feel like stress had been released throughout my entire body. I'd be getting increasingly stressed the closer it came round to me saying my name. And reflecting on this, um, it's made me think quite a lot about how for a lot of us it can feel like there's something in us that's holding us back from being fully free to be ourselves. To be carefree and to just enjoy normal life. To feel, and it can feel like, for me it felt like my brain was working against me. Which as a Christian also doesn't make sense because we get told that Jesus came to give us life and life in all its fullness. And that when you come to follow him, you're supposed to be a new creation. But sometimes we don't feel very new. So what is holding us back? What was holding me back, I guess, and what holds all of us back um, is that we have a battle in the mind. And more specifically, we have a battle for our everyday thoughts and beliefs. There's a Harvard professor called Robert Rosenthal who conducted an experiment in a primary school in San Francisco. And what he did is he took a, a group of teachers and he said to these teachers, we're going to give you the best students. And what we're going to do is we're going to see what the results look like in a couple of years' time. And by the way, you're our best students. Sorry, your best teachers. Um, can you guess what happened? Obviously, in a couple of years' time, the scores were through the roof. So he said to the teachers after a few years' time, why do you think that was? And they said, well, you gave us the best students. And he was like, no, we, we kind of lied. We picked them at random. And they were like, well, obviously, we're the best teachers. And he said, no, we lied about that too. You were also selected at random. So Rosenthal suggests this. The reason that the scores were so much higher was because they all expected and they all believed that they were capable of greatness. So here's my point. What we think about ourselves is incredibly powerful. The problem is, is that our minds and our thoughts and our beliefs and our internal world can often feel like an unsafe place. And we get into the habit of distracting ourselves and we become experts <clears throat> excuse me, in avoiding silence. Um, and effectively, we're trying to get out of our minds. The issue is that for some of us, we may have been around negative words spoken directly to us or around us as we were growing up. Research tells us that a child's earliest relationship with um, their primary caregiver significantly determines our long-term emotional and psychological well-being. That the neural pathways laid down in our brain relationships, more than three, shape our relationship then and our, all of our future relationships. 
Our brains, the way we think, our neural pathways are literally formed by words spoken to and around us. What we listen to determines not just what we think, but how we think. So when we struggle with our mental health, we can often self-medicate. It could be drinking too much, it could be watching too much TV, it could be relationships, it could be religion, it could be social media, it could be scrolling for hours just looking at pictures of food and celebrities. It could be podcasts. By the way, I run a podcast, it's excellent. You should distract yourself with that one. Um, Our phones uh, are brilliant tools, aren't they? But they're also really good at numbing our brains. And all of these things are, all these things are essentially painkillers. But painkillers don't solve the problem, do they? They just mask that it's there in the first place. So are we actually able to change the way we think? I guess that's what I want to drill down to a little bit today, um, is what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our mind? Since the start of 2020, you'll be aware that we've been going through the book of Mark. And today I'm going to focus on the very famous passage that Princetta uh, read out in Mark chapter 12. At the end of chapter 11, um, we see that Jesus has a conflict with the religious elite. And that goes throughout most of chapter 12. We see that there's an intellectual showdown between Jesus and various factions of the religious leaders throughout the chapter. Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard, which culminates in Jesus having quite a public dig at the religious leaders. They get incensed, so they send these delegations of intellectuals to question him on things like the afterlife, on taxes. There's that thing about the vineyards. And and really, also, who the heck does he think he is? And right there in the middle of this chapter where Jesus is arguing with the pious and the elite, is an incredibly famous and vital, uh, vitally important passage. And it is here that Jesus completely changes the game. We meet a scribe who comes to Jesus with a question. Now, the scribes were not part of the uh, religious elite, so there was no love lost between them. And this scribe actually came with a very different intent with his question. The scribe, who was an expert in the law, asks Jesus this. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied with the key verse, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. In Matthew, uh, Matthew's account of the gospel, it adds in that the entire law are based on these two commandments. Jesus, um, after Jesus answers the scribe, um, and the scribe agrees with the statement, it says, well said, teacher, you have spoken truth. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings, sacrifices required in the law. Then Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Remember, the big idea of this series so far has been that heaven and earth were together and they were separated and they were never supposed to be separated. And the book of Mark is the story of Jesus bringing these two worlds back together. Heaven and earth were never meant to be separated, but he brings them back together throughout this story. And our passage today illustrates how this isn't just an external process out there, but an internal process in here. 
After this, uh, we heard that Mark records that no one dared ask Jesus any questions. Um, what it actually should say is that none of the religious leaders asked Jesus any more questions. Because in the next chapter, we see Peter, James, John, and Andrew asking Jesus questions. Then in the following chapters, the disciples ask him all sorts of questions. Asking questions is good. Can we all agree that? Thank you. The passage that we hear about Jesus saying, what is the greatest commandment, is the crescendo of a showdown with the intellectual elite. And he chooses to not engage in one-upmanship, but he turns our attention to the worship of God. What is worship? Worship is ascribing value or worth to something or someone. It is the thing that we love the most. What does the word love mean in this verse? There are many words used for love within the scriptures, but here Jesus uses the word agape, which means sacrificial love. It is the highest form of love. You love something so much, you would give up everything for this thing that you love, including your own life. There is no selfishness to this love. This love is costly because it's giving something up, and it is significantly life-changing. So today we're going to look at loving God or agape God with all of our mind. Jesus is actually quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 to 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What is interesting is both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus adds in the word mind into this well-known Hebrew scripture. The word used for mind here is, is the Greek word dianoios, which means the capacity for, the process of, and the result of discursive thinking. The Greek word for intellectual uh, thinking and rationale is nous, which is not used here. So making this distinction is, poor, is important because loving God with all your mind is not linked to how high your IQ is. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It's to do with a different part of our brain altogether. And I suggest that Jesus uh, is intentional about this because he's just had a showdown with those people who rely on their own intelligence as a mean to a relationship with God. Please hear me, I'm not against intelligence. I'm actually uh, studying for a degree in theology at the moment and I would love to get the highest grade possible. But if I believe I can know of God instead of knowing God, then I've completely missed the point. Back to the word Dionysus. The capacity for, the process of, or the result of discursive thinking. What is discursive thinking? Discursive thought is our mind's background noise. It's the rehearsal of the conversation we've had with our boss during the day. It's what we're thinking about as we walk down the street or before you go to bed or the new book you want to read or how much pasta and toilet roll is enough. It's our mind's background music, so to speak. Doing this talk has really challenged me this week and because I perpetually drown out my own thoughts all the time. Um, I always have a podcast on or an audio book or music, and I've been like it for such a long time. I used to do it to drown out my worries and my anxieties and my thoughts. And despite the fact that Jesus has actually set me free from, from quite a lot, not from everything, but from a lot, I think I now habitually avoid silence. So what would it look like for me to love the Lord my God with all my mind in my everyday thoughts? So this week I've simply just stopped putting my headphones in automatically as I walk around. Um, and as a result, I've started to actually think of, say, different people or situations or conversations. And then I just 
kind of speak to Jesus about it. Um, I'm not used to having no distraction, so I almost feel bored. So my prayer is almost to fill that void. Um, So then I start to pray really deep prayers like, Jesus, be with me. Um, Jesus, talk to me. Help. You know, deep stuff like that. Or this week, my in-laws have been around. Uh, Sarah and I have just moved house, so they've come and they've been amazing. They've put up our curtains, they've put up our furniture, they've done all the gardening. So I'm walking around thinking, Lord, thank you for my in-laws. I pray that they have a safe journey as they come down. Will you bless them? I'm way more aware of myself and everybody else around me um, because I'm not distracting myself. I'm less shut off from the world, um, and I'm more likely to say hello and to chat to people. Uh, This week we heard, many of you may have heard, there was a stabbing down in Broccoli. um, And Anne White, uh, she suggested we should go and pray and offer support to people who've been affected by this. So as I'm on the way to meet Anne to to pray, I'm asking God about this. I'm saying, Lord, how can we bring your kingdom to Broccoli? His kingdom where there is love, not fear. Where there is hope and not despair. This week, more than for a long time, I really focused on hearing the voice of God and asking him questions, which is good, and responding, knowing that he is with us. So what does it look like for me to have God um, in my everyday normal thoughts? I think it means making Jesus my background music, the kind of thing that's on all the time in the back of my mind. Not being afraid of silence and believing that God wants to talk to me. In this passage, Jesus is basically saying, allow God into your everyday mind. And when we do this, we put him first, which is worship. And our minds, as Ben was saying earlier, are totally transformed. When we allow God to fill our minds and we surrender it to him, he'll start to change the way we think about him, about life. And for me, this is where it starts to get quite powerful. It's where what we think about ourselves is fundamentally and totally transformed. Jesus said in that passage, love your neighbor and your God as you love yourself. We need to be able to love ourselves to be able to love other people. We need to let God into our everyday mind, and we do this by making him our background music. Chris Vallotton is a pastor of a church in America where I went to a school for a year, and he says this. I think he's quoting someone else, and I couldn't find the original quote, so we'll quote Chris. You are not what you think. You are not what others think about you, but you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks about you. Uh, What does that look like? Um, I've got a very good friend who I'm at uh, university with who is a real character. Um, And he, um, he, to be honest, hated the first year of college. Absolutely hated it. I can't study. I hate this. I'm no good at this. I can't listen. I can't do these things. There was all, these, all this stuff was holding him back from being who he was supposed to be. And then one day he had a conversation with one of the teachers who told us frighteningly that they put our picture on the wall and they discuss us as a faculty with all, even the librarians and the people serving tea and coffee. And lo and behold, this guy, is, they said to him, you're, you're not just top of your class. You're top of the school. And he was completely dumbfounded. But I saw an overnight transformation in everything about him. He started to believe that he was capable, that he belonged, and that he was worthy. I actually saw in real time that experiment I talked about at the start. Why did it change his behavior? Because he listened. 
he heard what was being said about him, and these thoughts took root in his mind. So the words became thoughts in his mind. They became a belief which helped to shape his self-perception, and then this led to actions that came from that place. Obviously, college and the faculty were incredibly important to him, and he became what he believed they thought about him. What if the most important person in your life wasn't college, wasn't your friends, wasn't your spouse, wasn't your boss, wasn't your church leaders? What if the most important person in your life was Jesus? So what do we need to do? Uh, We need to invite Jesus to be the background music of our life and to get to know what he thinks about me and all that's created. We need to not just limit him to our times of prayer and Bible reading, which are really important to actually learn what he thinks about you, but we need to take him out from our homes into the street on the way to work, on the way to see friends, on the way to church, on the way to the pub, on the way to the football, on the way to visit family. We need to take him out with us. He's actually a really good friend. And I think we need to start to think of him as that as well. I have friends who will literally go for a walk with God. I have other friends who will go for a coffee with Jesus. And they sit there, hopefully in their mics, they look a bit weird. But like they'll basically sit there, like talking to him, asking him questions, listening to responses, wanting to know what Jesus says and thinks about particular situations. I've always loved the idea of going for camping for one night, just me and God, around a fire, so I can have no distractions and listening to his voice. I said at the start that I used to have a fear of public speaking, and it was a genuinely irrational fear, Um, and obviously this has changed. So what what did change for me? To be honest, a lot of things God had to sort out within me, but what fundamentally changed was how I thought about God and how I thought he thought about me. I started to believe that he was a good father, and my understanding was now filtered through that belief. So... Just imagine with me um, what we think of as a good dad. When we see a father speaking kindly to a child, playing with a child, being with them, making them feel safe, making them feel secure, and making them laugh, we think there's a good dad. But when we see a father shouting, being abusive, ignoring, hitting their children, we often think there's probably a much better way of doing that. And that doesn't, to me, sound like a good dad. Um, I think I probably saw God that way for quite a long time, to be honest. And I had to learn that he was the first dad, that he is the kind father, that he is loving, that he does sit with me and he wants to make me laugh. He wants to make me smile. And when I started to see God as the loving father we see in scripture, it fundamentally changed everything. And it was in those times that I allowed him to come in and it changed the way I thought. And it freed me from a lot of fears. And I can now do the thing that I feel that he wants me to do and that I actually want to do as well. I'm not held back from the thing that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. Jesus said, I only do what I see my father do and I only say what I hear my father say. Jesus was free from the fear of the crowd. If you read Mark 12, all you see is the religious leaders worrying about the reaction of the crowd. But Jesus was free from the fear of the crowd. Jesus was free to do the stuff he was born to do. Don't we all want to feel free to do the stuff we were born to do? 
Jesus won the battle with the religious elite, not because of knowledge. Because actually, again, if you look at each of his responses, they're all quite different. Sometimes he uh, um, speaks and interprets scripture. Sometimes he makes up a parable. Other times he gives a genius response. There's another time when he talks about the afterlife, which can only really be a revelation from God himself. But Jesus was in constant conversation with God so that he could pull out the answer that he needed whenever it was needed for that situation. And the good news is that we can all do this. We all get to play. We all have that discursive part of our brain which we can give to God. If, if you invite him in, can I tell you what he won't do? He's not going to tell you you're a scumbag. He's not going to tell you you're a worm. He's not going to tell you you're worthless. He won't tell you that you're not good enough. He's not mean and he's not distant. And he's not annoyed if you haven't prayed for a while. He won't leave you on your own. He wants nothing more than to be in a close relationship with us. He paid the ultimate price to make it possible for us to be reunited into a loving relationship with him. You are that valuable. How do we measure value? We measure value by what somebody's willing to worth. If you think you've got a million pound house, but no one's going to pay a million pounds, you don't have a million pound house. Value is measured in what someone is willing to pay. And God was willing to pay with his life. You're that valuable. And if we start to believe that, then we'll be totally transformed. What would it look like to truly believe what God thinks about us? Well, Jesus said to describe, you're not far from the kingdom. The kingdom of God is all around us. I just think sometimes we distract ourselves too much and when we fill our heads with so much noise, we can't actually hear what God's saying about it. And it all starts with, am I willing to believe what Jesus says about me? Am I willing to change the way I think? Do I want to see the kingdom of God manifest in broccoli and in the lives of those around me? Jesus replies, uh, declares this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And part of the word repent literally means to change the way you think. It's as though Jesus said, change the way you think because I brought my world with me. And if you don't change your perspective on reality, you'll never be able to draw from that unseen place. So what would it look like if we all did it as a, as a team, as a congregation, as a family? Let's be honest, our minds have been pumped full of information and fear and anxiety about the coronavirus this week. And many of us will be feeling incredibly anxious about what to do and where to go. And we've been wrestling with this uh, throughout the week. As how do we respond as people of faith? Um, what I've seen on the media and online has been an incredibly earthly response. And don't get me wrong, as Ben said, we make the relevant precautions. But it is important to remember, as he said, that we, are, we belong to heaven. And we need to approach this from that heavenly perspective. The earthly perspective is to turn in on ourselves, is to buy stuff up for yourselves, is to fight in the aisles, to get there early so that you get what you need. And basically, <clears throat> let's not give two hoots about anybody else. The heavenly response is to turn our lives outward, to think and pray, as Ben was saying, about those who are suffering, lonely and vulnerable, to respond in love and prayer. Who can I visit? Who can I bring food to? Who can I be an expression of love to? when it really matters? Who's vulnerable and in need around me? If you're not sure what to do, invite God into your prayers. Make him that background music. Because our background music, when it is God, is full of love, hope, joy, and righteousness. It's not fear, full of fear and anxiety and hoarding. See, we were born to invade 
realms of conflict, adversity, and impossibility. The responsibility of every believer is to look at what is possible and in that secret place with God, contend until there's a breakthrough. Until we manifest the very things that Jesus did and had that should be manifest in our lives. It's the privilege of every believer and it's got to be bigger than us. And it starts by making God our background music. Finally, if you are struggling this morning, this is what God said through Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Four to nine, it may come up. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace which succeeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Should we give it a go?